You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. Four, Ephesians chapter 4. And I, I couldn't help but think about and remember when I saw everybody running through the rain, a episode on Mythbusters. Ever, has anybody watched Mythbusters? Remember that episode by chance? Well, they had this, this theory that if you were to run through the rain, you would gain less wetness. You would be drier by the end of it. So they tested that out. Well, it just so happens that the slower you go, the less wet you got. Because the surface area on your shoulders is less than the front of your body when you move forward through it. So congratulations to everybody who got more wet for running. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I just I couldn't help but think about it the second I saw everybody running through the rain. Um, the The title of tonight's message is "Take Off the Grave Clothes." Um, now Jennifer had a struggle coming coming up with a good background because, well, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Ephesians chapter four. I, I'm trying to keep it light to start off with, but this is going to be a very big gut check tonight. Um, and I thought it was a really, really good section of text, and it, it was something that humbled me and uh, something that I take very seriously. The Bible was written to be obeyed. It was not simply to be studied, but to be obeyed. And this is why the words therefore and wherefore are repeated so often in the second half of, of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 1, verse 17, verse 25, chapter 5, verse 1, verse 7, verse 14, 17, and 24 all include this word. It's very emphatic. It's very important. He's trying to get this message across. Paul was saying, here is what Christ has done for you. Now, therefore, or wherefore, in the light of what Christ has done for you, here is what we ought to do for Christ. It's a reality check of what we should be doing because of what Christ did for us. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have heard that many times in this church, and I'm very thankful for that because it is a constant reminder that we need to be uh, warriors in the kingdom and followers in the kingdom and servants in the kingdom that are doers and not just here. We're not just enjoying. I mean, it's good to enjoy the blessings of God and the mercies of God and, and partake in the fellowship, but there are requirements for us. There are actions we have to be moving forward. We have to be fighting diligently against Satan and um, protecting our homes and, and our personal walk with, with Christ. James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving your own selves. The fact that we have been called in Christ in Ephesians 1.18 ought to motivate us to walk in unity together. Now this church I have been blessed to be a part of has walked in unity for a very long time, and I pray constantly that that is maintained because I've been in environments that have not been that. And it is a night and day difference seeing the difference of love towards one another and fellowship with one another and edifying each other in love versus tearing each other down and being in discord. I, I have experienced both types of churches, and I'm very thankful to be part of a family that is in unity. The fact that we have been raised from the dead as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, should motivate us to walk in purity as we start to see in this chapter, or as Paul told us in Romans, walk in newness of life. 
He said that in Romans 6, 4. We are alive in Christ, not dead in sins. Therefore, put off the old man and put on the new man. He said that in chapter 4, verse 22 and 24. We'll read that again later. I didn't put that in the notes because we will hit that. Um, so we are to take off the grave clothes, the old self, and put on the grace clothes. Amen. We don't need to be walking around in our stinky, filthy rags in our old nature. We are now new. We can put the grace clothes on now. Amen. So we need to take off the old stuff. So please stand with me as we pray. I want to take a moment and, and pray that our hearts are prepared for this message. And, and I'm going to do my best to convey this in, in a very tender way, but a very serious way. Lord, I pray so honestly and, and earnestly, Lord, that not only do you work through me today to speak these words and, and to speak your truth, but I pray that you work in my heart and every heart here. I know, Lord, that you are here in the midst of us because where two or more are gathered, you are here with us. I pray you tear down the walls in our hearts and our minds. Help us to be honest with ourselves, be honest with you, and come to the altar pleading for your forgiveness and, and your grace, Lord, as we recognize where we fall short and help us to be better servants of you, better followers of you, better disciples of you, and help us to desire, Lord, to be educated and, and draw closer to you on a daily basis. I pray that we learn from you today in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So take off the grave clothes. Number one, the first point I want to hit is the admonition. What does the admonition mean? It means the warning, the reprimand. Paul started out with a major warning. So we're going to start where he started off. We're going to go chronologically or numerically through these verses, verse by verse, and we're going to see the warning that he gives us, the admonition. He said in verse 17, This I say, therefore, in other words, because of what Christ did for you, this I say, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. In other words, there are some negatives in the Christian life and here is one of them. Walk not as other Gentiles walk. Walk not. The Christian is not to imitate the life of the unsaved people around them. It is very easy to be drawn into doing that. But we are told to not do that. They are dead in trespasses and sins, says Ephesians 2.1, while they have been raised from the dead and been giving big be, have been given eternal life in Christ. Paul explains the differences between the saved and the unsaved. To begin with, Christians think differently from unsaved people. We think differently. I saw that very clearly. I mean, I experienced it myself, but to see it in my, my uh, second-born son when he first got saved, how he now started to understand what he was reading in the Bible. His, his mind worked differently. And it was the coolest thing to see his mind start to understand. We think very differently, and our minds are continuously shaped by our time spent with Christ in his word. It's a constant renewing of our mind. We think differently. Note the emphasis here on the thinking here. He said, in, he said mind, in Ephesians 4, 23, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And also understanding and ignorance. In verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. He also mentioned learned Christ in Ephesians uh, 4 verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. In other words, salvation begins with repentance, which is a change of mind. We turn from our old ways, and our mind is now changed, and we move towards Christ. The whole outlook of a person changes when they trust Christ, including their values, their goals, and their interpretation of life. We see life differently now. So what's wrong with the mind of an unsaved person? I, I can be honest and say that I have often asked that question. What is wrong with them? <laughs> How can they not understand? How can they not see? For one thing, their thinking is vain or futile. It leads to no substantial purpose. They don't have a real purpose in this life yet that they understand. Since they do not know God, they cannot truly understand the world around them, nor can they understand themselves. They don't know why they were created. They don't know why, why they're on this earth. They don't know their purpose on this earth. They don't know why God did certain things, and he continues to do certain things. He doesn't understand God's love. They don't understand the world. It's, they're, they're blind to a lot of what's going on because there is a spiritual world outside of the physical and all they can see is the physical battle. The sad story is told in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, where it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is a very vivid picture of, of the unsaved person. Whether they know it or not, whether it's that obvious or not, that's what they're doing. They are worshiping things in, in the world. Our world today possesses a great deal of knowledge, but very little wisdom. They don't know how to apply it. Wisdom is applying knowledge. They can't apply it because they don't fully understand. There, uh, Thoreau put it beautifully when he said that we have improved means to unimproved ends. The unsaved man's thinking is futile because it's darkened. He thinks he is enlightened because he rejects the Bible, Bible and believes the latest philosophies when in reality he is in the dark. Romans 1.22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They think they are wise. Satan has blinded the minds of the unsaved because he does not want them to see the truth in Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, why are they like this or why can't they understand? Well, it's because Satan is doing everything in his power to keep them from seeing it, blinding them. It's not simply that their eyes are blinded so they cannot see, but that their minds are darkened so they cannot think straight about spiritual matters. The unsaved man is dead because of the spiritual ignorance. The truth and life go together. The grace of God and life go together. 
The word of God and life go together. If you believe God's truth, then you receive God's life. But you would think that the unbeliever would do their utmost to get out of their terrible spiritual situation. They would do everything they can to get out of it, but they don't see a way out of it. And thank goodness, thank God for the power of his word and how simple the gospel is. Because it still penetrates all of Satan's fortified walls. He still finds a way to reach each and every person on this planet. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. Their life is not futile, but purposeful. Their mind is filled with the light of God's word, and their heart with the fullness of God's life. They give their body to God as an instrument of righteousness and not to sin for the satisfaction of their own selfish lusts. This is what it looks like when they start to see God's truth, when they start to believe it, when they become a Christian, when they rely on him completely. Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In every single way, the believer is different from the unbeliever. And therefore, the admonition, the urgent warning here is to walk not as they walk. Because then we'll be pulled away. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we can't forget sometimes. And it is a dark and lonely road when you start wandering off the road he intended you to be on. So the warning is to walk not. Now we see the argument, number two. Paul has an argument for this. Because he can, he can yell at us all day long and say, don't do it. But now you have to argue the facts. You have to reason with somebody that doesn't fully understand why you shouldn't do it. So we look at number two, the argument, starting in verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so, be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Paul reinforced his admonition, his warning, with an argument from the spiritual experience of his readers. So the, the emphasis here is on the mind or the outlook of the believer. What are you believing in? What are, what, what, how do you look at the world? How do you see the world? How do you perceive those things that are happening around you? But be ye not so learned Christ. Look at verse 20. He didn't say learned about Christ because it's, it's possible to learn about Christ and never actually be saved. There are some really educated people that know the Bible better than anybody and yet still don't believe a single word of it. They don't believe what God did for them. To learn Christ means to have a personal relationship to Christ so that you get to know him better each day. Not learn about him, but to learn who he is. We can learn about Sir Winston Churchill because there are a lot of books written about him, and we can find books about his life, but we can never ourselves learn him because he's dead now. We can't do that, but we can, we can learn Jesus Christ because why? He's alive. <laughs> Therefore, we can learn Christ through a personal fellowship with him. 
The, this fellowship is based on the word of God. We have the word of God. I have it on my computer. I have it on my phone. I have it on my iPad. I have it on my TV. I have it on my nightstand. I have it in many forms with a lot of different commentaries in my office, in my, my living room. I have it all over the place. The access is there now. I can listen to it on the radio. I can listen to it in my car. I can, I can do any form to get a chance to listen to the word of God. I can fellowship with Christ and learn Christ. So we don't have an excuse anymore. We can be taught the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. The better we understand the word of God, the better we know the son of God. For the whole Bible is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And John 5, 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. All of scripture testifies of me, points to me, and is about me. The uns, not me. Just to clarify, about Jesus Christ, the unsaved man is spiritually ignorant, while the Christian is intelligent in the things of the word. The unsaved man does not know Christ, while the believer grows in his personal knowledge of Christ day by day. We believe the truth, we have received the life, therefore we will and must walk in the way and not walk after the example of the unsaved world. But the experience of salvation goes a lot deeper than this because it has resulted in a whole new position before God. The old man, the former life, the former conversation has been put away and we can now walk in newness of life through Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 is a summary of Romans chapters 5 through 8 where Paul explained the believer's identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. We saw an example, a demonstration, an outward demonstration of this on Sunday through, our, through the baptism that happened. Verses 22 through 24, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. As Christians, we have not simply changed our minds. We have totally changed our citizenship. Amen. We are no longer citizens of this earth. We are just sojourners. We are here temporarily. Amen. And I'm very thankful for that because, frankly, there are times I hate living here. <laughs> I'm thankful for the for the, the Christian family I get to par participate in fellowship with and the love and grace I, I receive on a daily basis and the joy of seeing my kids grow, but I so desperately want to be done with all the horrible things that are happening. We belong to God's new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, and therefore the ideas and desires of the old creation no longer should control our lives. The simplest illustration of this great truth is given in John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. And if you want to turn there, you can. Um, our Lord's friend Lazarus had been in the grave for four days, and Jesus and his disciples arrived at Bethany, and even Martha admitted that by now the decaying body would smell horribly. 
I work for a beef company and there is a rendering part of that the plan and when you walk by it and I, I don't know why they positioned it this way but in order to get to the restrooms you had to walk by it <laughs> so if you weren't sick already you were getting sick on the way the smell of, of the decaying meat I can just imagine is very similar to what she was warning about here he's been in there four days it probably smelled horrible Jesus spoke the word, and Lazarus came forth alive, which is an illustration of John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Notice our Lord's next words. He said in John chapter 11, verse 44, loose him and let him go. He doesn't need to be in there anymore because he's alive. In other words, take off the grave clothes. He's alive now. Lazarus no longer belonged to the old dominion of death, for he was now alive. Why go about wearing grave clothes if we're alive? Why would we want to walk in our stink, in our filth, when we are now alive? We are new citizens. We are co-heirs with Christ. So why would we wear our dirty rags? Why do we continue to walk around in grave clothes. We need to take off the old and put on the new. This was Paul's argument. You no longer belong to the old corruption of sin. You belong to the new creation in Christ. So take off the grave clothes. And you might ask, how do we do this? Well, Ephesians 4.23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Conversion is a crisis that leads to a process. There's a situation, a horrible situation, where we, we have to now change. We have to move forward. We, we don't want to stay in our grave clothes anymore. We don't want to stay in the sinful nature of our old selves. We don't want to stay in, in the stink of our old life. We want to move forward. We want to claim the promises. We want to move into the Canaan land that is illustrated in the Old Testament of our Christian walk with him. We want to claim those promises that he has for us. But we have to move forward. And if we stay in the stink, it is a crisis that forces us and leads us to a process of change. Through Christ, once and for all, we have been given a new position in his new creation. But day by day, we must, by faith, take and use what he has given us, his word. The word of God renews the mind as we surrender our everything to him. It renews our mind on a daily basis, which is why it is so crucial that we are in it. Romans 12, 1 through 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and not be conformed to this world. Don't be shaped by this world. Don't let the pressure of this world conform you to be like them, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye prove that what is good that or what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God you see the more you spend time in the word of God the more you are perfected by it and shaped by it and consumed by it John 17 17 sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth as the mind understands the truth of God's word it is gradually transformed by the spirit and this renewal leads to a changed life you want to move forward in your Christian walk spend time with him 
Physically, you are what you eat, but spiritually, you are what you think. Let that sink in. Physically, you are what you eat, which we've probably heard many times, but spiritually, you are what you think. Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. This is why it is important for us as Christians to spend time daily meditating on the word, praying and fellowshipping with Christ. So we saw, number one, the warning. We saw, number two, the argument. Now let's look at the application. How do we apply this to our daily lives? Paul was not content to simply explain a principle and leave it at that. He's very good about that. He gives us answers. He always applied it to the different areas of life that need to feel its power. Paul even dared to name specific sins. Five different sins are named in this section, and Paul told us to avoid them, and he explained why. So here are the, the sins we must avoid. First of all, lying. Look at verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. By definition, a lie is a statement that is contrary to fact spoken with the intent to deceive. If I tell you it is noon, then discover that my watch was wrong, I didn't tell a lie. But if I gave you the wrong time so you could be late to a meeting and that I would benefit from, that would be a lie. John 8, 44, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Our old nature is bound to that. It is instinct. You don't have to teach a kid to lie. <laughs> Spare the rod and you'll, you'll help him. You'll encourage him to lie. Satan is a liar and he wants us to believe that God is a liar. We know that because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He planted that seed of doubt that God must be lying. He must be withholding something. And that's when sin entered. Or the thought of it entered. When she acted on it and Adam failed to do his duty as the man to stop her, and took as well, and then they lied following this. Well, that sealed it right there. Whenever we speak truth, the Spirit of God works. But whenever we tell a lie, Satan goes to work. We like to believe that we help people by lying to them, but that is not the case. We may not see the sad consequences immediately, but ultimately they will come. We're afraid of the consequences. We're just prolonging them. First John 2.21, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Hell is prepared for whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, according to Revelation 22.15. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. This does not mean that anybody who ever told a lie is going to go to hell, so hold on to that thought for a second. 
but rather that those who, whose lives are controlled by lies, they love lies and they make lies. That's not a fruit of the spirit. That, that's the old nature. The Christian's life is controlled by truth. And note the reason here that Paul gave for telling the truth. We belong to each other in Christ. We are only hurting each other when we aren't willing to tell the truth to each other. That does not give you license to be blunt and horrible to each other. You tell the truth in love. He urged us to build the body in love, and he urged us to build the body in truth. Ephesians 4, 16, for, or from whom the whole body, fitly jointed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And back in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, or yes, grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love only helps us to grow closer to being near Christ, to being more like Christ, helps edify and build us up and strengthen the body. As members of one another, we affect each other. We cannot build each other up apart from the truth. The first sin that was judged in the early church was the sin of lying in Acts chapter 5. The second thing he warned us about was anger. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be ye angry, but, or and, sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Anger is an emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. In itself, anger is not a sin because even God can be angry. Several times in the Old Testament, the phrase appears, the anger of the Lord. The holy anger of God is a part of his judgment against sin, as illustrated in our Lord's anger when he cleansed the temple in Matthew chapter 21. The Bible often speaks of anger being kindled as though anger can be compared to fire. Sometimes a man's anger smolders. How many people have experienced that? This is what we would call malice. But this same anger can suddenly burst forth and destroy, and that is when it becomes wrath. It is difficult for us to practice a truly holy anger or righteous indignation because our emotions are tainted by sin, and we do not have the same knowledge that God has in all matters. God sees everything clearly and knows everything completely, and we do not. So the New Testament principle is that the believer should be angry at sin but loving towards people. We shouldn't be explosive and angry towards people that we love or, or even people we don't love. Psalm 97.10 says that, Are ye that love the Lord hate evil? It's possible to be angry and not sin, but if we do sin, we must settle the matter quickly and not let the sun go down on our wrath. Matthew 5.25 says, Agree with thine adversary quickly. In other words, come to an agreeable situation. Make this right. Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Our job's not to go tell a bunch of other people to help tear this person down because of what they did. No, go to them first. Try to deal with them first because that's more loving. The fire of anger is, if not quenched by loving forgiveness, will spread and defile and destroy the work of God. And this is very serious. 
I know this speaking from experience because I was saved 16 years and holding so desperately onto the anger that I had and the bitterness I had towards my family because of the, the horrible torment I went through, the, the abuse I went through. But it was, it was very clear, message after message, that if I didn't let this bitterness go, then I couldn't be used. I couldn't be used by him. So I took care of that. And that you know, sounds easier said than done, and it was not. Because I came up to an altar, convicted by the Holy Spirit to get rid of this bitterness in my life, which is firmly rooted at this point, 16 years of it, beyond actually because I got saved when I was 16 I came up to that altar to try to take care of this and I could not get a single word of prayer out I couldn't audibly get a voice out it took me punching the stairs to fight through the pull of Satan behind me to tell me not to do it to, to scream it out <laughs> to let go of it and to hand it over to God because that's what I was there for. I wanted to give it to him finally. I wanted to say, Lord, I, I can't hold on to this anymore. I don't want to believe the lies that are on my shoulder right now telling me that it's going to be a, a big problem or, or I'm going to regret letting go of this. I want to be used by you, Lord. I want to be effective. I want to be able to be a work. I want to work for you. I want to serve you faithfully, and I can't do that. If I'm holding on to this bitterness, Lord, take it. And I forgave my dad. I forgave my grandma. I, I started forgiving all these people in my life I didn't even realize I needed to forgive. And then I thanked God so much for it afterwards. While I was praying, I was thanking him for the abuse. <laughs> Which seems, you're, you might be sitting there holding on to bitterness now and saying, how could you possibly thank him for that? Well, guess what? It got me where I needed to be, to be on my knees to be a servant of Christ. And I knew that somehow he was going to use it for good. I don't need to understand. I just need to have faith in that. Lord, you can do something with me. You can do something with the, the past that I come from. You can do something with it. It's not in vain, Lord, because you allowed it to happen. So I thanked him for it. fire of anger, if not quenched by loving forgiveness, will spread and defile and destroy the work of God. You may think this church is, is not susceptible to this, but it's, it's possible. Satan can find his way in here. This church is not immune to it. And according to Jesus, anger is the first step toward murder in Matthew chapter 5. Because anger gives the devil a foothold in our lives. And Satan is a murderer. We already read that in, in John eight forty four. Satan hates God and God's people, and when he finds a believer with the sparks of anger in his heart, he fans those sparks, adds fuel to the fire, and does a great deal of damage to God's people and God's church. Both lying and anger give place to the devil. A person tried to defile their bad temper by saying, I explode and then it's all over with. Yes, replied a friend, just like a shotgun, but look at the damage that's left behind. Anyone can become angry, wrote Aristotle, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that, that is not easy. Solomon has a good solution in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, 
but grievous words stir up anger. I told my kids this many times because, believe it or not, I struggle with anger. I told them early on, if you're scared, if, if, you, if, if, if I'm going too far, if I sound angry, if, if you think I'm angry, tell me. Just say, Daddy, I don't understand. Daddy, I love you. Or they come and they give me a hug. I said, no matter how terrifying it is, do that, and I guarantee it'll shut me down, and it works every time. I instantly realize how irrational I had been if I had gone too far. Sometimes it was for the right reasons, and then I, we have a calm conversation about it afterwards, and, and they start to understand why there's a punishment involved. But a soft answer turneth away wrath. It works. Stealing is the next thing. Ephesians 4.28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give him that needeth. We will move past this today because stealing, I think we grasp the concept there, it's wrong. Corrupt speech. In verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, in other words, building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The mouth and heart are connected. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. We expect a change in speech when a person becomes a Christian. We expect it. It is interesting to trace the word mouth through the book of Romans and see how Christ makes a difference in a man's speech. The sinner's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness in chapter 3, verse 14. But when he trusts Christ, he gladly confesses with his mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord in chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. And is, condemned, is a condemned sinner, his, or as a condemned sinner, his mouth is stopped before the throne of God in verse or chapter 3, verse 19, but as a believer, his mouth is opened to praise God. Romans 15, 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Change the heart and you change the speech. Paul certainly knew the difference, for when he was an unsaved rabbi, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord in Acts 9, 1. But when he trusted Christ, a change took place. In Acts 9, verse 11, Behold, he prayeth. That was described of Paul. From praying on to praying for in one step of faith. The word corrupt used in Matthew 7, 17 through 18 refers to rotten fruit. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a, a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. It means that which is worthless, bad, or rotten. Our words do not have to be dirty to be worthless. Sometimes we go along with the crowd and try to impress people with the fact that we are not as, as puritanical or, or, or the same as they think. You know, they, don't, they see us a certain way. Peter may have had this motive in mind when he was accused by the girl of being one of Christ's disciples in Matthew 26, 74. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crow. The appetites of the old life show up when we permit filthy communication out of the mouth, according to Colossians 3. 
If you remember, before we were saved, we lived in spiritual death, and like Lazarus, our personal corruption produced an odor that was not pleasing to God. No wonder Paul wrote, their throat is an open sepulcher in Romans 3.13. The remedy to this is to make sure the heart is full of blessing. So, fill the heart with the love of Christ so that only the truth and purity come out of the mouth. Your words have power either for good or for evil. Paul tells us to speak in such a way that we, we say, or what we say will build up our hearers, not tear them down. Our words should minister grace to help draw others closer to Christ. Satan, of course, encourages speech that will tear people down and destroy the work of Christ. Now, finally, the last point is bitterness. Ryan. <laughs> yep. I say that because he mentioned that several times. Like, Man, I hope we talk about bitterness today. Verses 30 through 32, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. These verses warn us against several sins of the attitude and amplify what Paul wrote about anger. Bitterness refers to a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. Somebody does something we do not like, so we harbor ill will against them. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Bitterness leads to wrath, which is the explosion on the outside of the feelings on the inside. Wrath and anger often lead to brawling, which is used as the word clamor or blasphemy, evil speaking. The first is fighting with fists. The second is fighting with words. It's difficult to believe that Christians would act this way, but they do. And this is why Paul warned us. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Bitterness and anger usually over trivial things make havoc of homes, churches, and friendships. It destroys them. It tears them down. Paul gives three reasons, and they are not very long, so bear with me. <laughs> three reasons why we must avoid bitterness. Number one, it grieves the Holy Spirit. He lives within the Christian, and when the heart is filled with bitterness and anger, the spirit grieves. The Holy Spirit is happiest in an atmosphere of love, joy, and peace, for these are the fruit of the Spirit that he produces in our lives as we obey him, as we spend time with him. The Holy Spirit cannot leave us because he has sealed us. Who's thankful for that? He cannot leave us. He's there. Because he sealed us until the day when Christ returns to take us home. We do not lose our salvation because of our sinful attitudes. But we certainly lose the joy of our salvation and the fullness of the Spirit's blessing. We grieve the Spirit when we have bitterness. Number two, our sin grieves God the Son. Our sin grieves Jesus who died for us. And number three, it grieves God the Father. It grieves him for he, he forgave us when, when we trusted Christ. He's the ultimate judge, and when we sit here in bitterness, it breaks his heart. Here Paul put his finger on the basic cause of a bitter attitude. It's because we cannot forgive people. An unforgiving spirit is the devil's playground, and before long it becomes the Christian's battleground. It is a battle that we are fighting on a constant 
daily basis. And we are just consumed by the battle. We can't see beyond the lines of war in our spiritual walk, in the, in the torment and the fires that are raging around us. The bitterness just continues to grow. If somebody hurts us either deliberately or unintentionally, and we do not forgive him or her, then we begin to develop bitterness within, which hardens the heart. We should be tender-hearted and kind, but instead we are hard-hearted and bitter. When we are bitter, we are not hurting the person who hurt us. We are only hurting ourselves. You think you're doing something against them to get back at them, but really you're only hurting yourself worse. Bitterness, is, bitterness in the heart makes us treat others the way Satan treats them. When we should treat others the way God has treated us. In his gracious kindness, God has forgiven us, and we should forgive others. We do not forgive for our sake or even for their sake, but for Jesus' sake. Learning how to forgive and forget is one of the secrets of a happy Christian life. Learning to let go, it's a challenge and it's hard. Think again about the motives for walking in purity. We are members of one another. Satan wants to get a foothold in our lives. We ought to share with others. We ought to build one another up. We ought to not grieve God. And after all, we have been raised from the dead. So why wear the grave clothes? Jesus says of us, as he said of Lazarus, loose him and let him go. His best friend. Loose him and let him go. So if you're holding on to bitterness tonight, if you're holding on to anger, the altar is going to be open if Danny wants to come and play something softly. Take care of it tonight. Don't let the sun set. Yes, it might still be raining, but the sun's out there somewhere. Take care of this bitterness today because it is only hurting you. And if you want somebody to pray with, I'm here to pray with. Ryan's here to pray with. Dan's here to pray with. I'm sure the whole church would love to surround you in prayer.